Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I make all of these podcasts myself. I do the research, the writing, the recording, everything. And I do it full time, so every dollar you give helps keep all of it going. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Today I'm looking at the history of Medicine Hat, Alberta. It's a really interesting community down in southeast Alberta, located right near the Cypress Hills, and it's got a very deep history. So, let's begin. The Indigenous Located on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the bison would often migrate through for centuries, providing a vital resource for the indigenous of the area in the summer. In the winter, the location of Medicine Hat was also a camping area for the indigenous prior to the arrival of Europeans. One of the reasons that Medicine Hat was a gathering place was that there was cottonwood trees in the area that attracted the bison herds, and the river in the area served as an early highway for the indigenous traveling across the landscape. The area was also used by the Cree and Assiniboine, and prior to the Blackfoot and others, the Medicine Hat area was used for thousands of years by previous indigenous cultures. Nearby to Medicine Hat is the Samus Site, a provincial historical site which I'm going to talk about in the next section. Today, Medicine Hat and its area sits on Treaty 4 and Treaty 7 land. The Samus Site Nearby a Medicine Hat near Seven Persons Creek is the Samus Archaeological Site. The site, which covers 36 hectares, also includes a small bison jump site, and it was used extensively by the indigenous for centuries. The site is believed to be a winter and early spring campsite that was used repeatedly between about 1390 and 1820. The site is divided into two terraces. The lower terrace contains a bison butchering site and meat processing area, while the upper terrace has ample evidence of camping activities, bone concentrations, and fire-broken rocks. Artifacts have been found at the site and are now housed at the Royal Alberta Museum. Rare artifacts found at the site include glass beads, a metal arrow point, bone and shell beads, a shell pendant, and pottery. Today, the site has become an on-leash dog park along with an off-leash water access point. Park users are asked to stay on designated trails as the city attempts to maintain the integrity of the site. Experts believe that through its use not only centuries ago but even thousands of years ago, there may be as many as 83 million artifacts buried at the site. The Founding of the Community One of the most common questions when it comes to Medicine Hat is where did the name come from? There are several legends related to it. One involves a merman river serpent named Soy Yi Da Bi, who appeared to a hunter and told him to sacrifice his wife to get mystical powers, which would manifest in the form of a special hat. Another legend around the name speaks of a battle between the Blackfoot and the Cree centuries ago. 
In the battle, a retreating Cree medicine man lost his headdress in the South Saskatchewan River, hence the name. In 1883, the Canadian Pacific Railway was being built through the area, and when it reached what would be Medicine Hat, the local settlers decided a town site was needed, and they gave it the name relating to the Indigenous legend. Before long, Medicine Hat quickly began to grow. By 1889, the first hospital west of Winnipeg was built in the community. The CPR, seeing the potential in the area, also made the town a divisional point for the railroad. On October 31, 1898, Medicine Hat became a town, and on May 9, 1906, it became a city. The community would continue to grow, and between 1909 and 1914, an economic boom pushed the population to more than 10,000 people. Before long, brickworks, pottery factories, glass bottle plants, flour mills, and coal mines sprang up, and Medicine Hat became known as the Pittsburgh of the West. Today, Medicine Hat is the sixth largest city in Alberta, with a population of 63,000 people. The POW Camp During the Second World War, prisoners of war camps sprang up around Canada, and one of those camps was located just outside of Medicine Hat. Called Camp 132, it opened in 1943, and covered 50 hectares with the ability to hold 12,000 prisoners. This was no small number considering Medicine Hat at the time had a population of about the same size. In all, 37,000 prisoners of war were sent to remote camps in Canada, and the two largest were at Medicine Hat and Lethbridge. For the German soldiers who found themselves at the camp, they would often do farm labor inside and outside the camp, and would also assist local businesses in Medicine Hat. Generally, conditions were quite good at the camps and several of the prisoners would begin to speak out against Hitler and the Nazis. This would lead to two prisoners being murdered by fellow inmates for speaking out. Due to the good treatment at the camp, several of the prisoners of war decided to come back to Canada after the war because they found the conditions and opportunities to be suited to their needs. The prisoners who worked in the fields also formed close bonds with the families they assisted and that would last well after the war. The camp would cease to operate in 1946 and most of the buildings were sold and dismantled. Today, Ryan Hall, the former drill hall, is one of the remaining structures from the camp and today it serves as an important agricultural hall in the community. The area that was the prisoner of war camp would become an agricultural fair location and Bistula Hall, which was the theater and cinema at the camp, would become the Patterson Armory. The world's largest teepee. As you drive through Medicine Hat, one of the most impressive structures that you will see is the massive teepee that rises above the surrounding landscape. Built in 1988 for the Calgary Winter Olympics, the Samus teepee is a tribute to the indigenous heritage of Canada. After the Winter Games, the structure was moved to Medicine Hat, where it was installed and opened on October 20th, 1991. The teepee is built entirely of steel with a concrete foundation and features 10 large circular storyboards that depict aspects of indigenous culture and history. In all, the teepee weighs 800 tons and rises 215 feet in the air and has a diameter of 160 feet. In all, there are 960 bolts that hold the entire structure together. Just below the teepee is the Seven Persons Coulee and the Samus archaeological site that I spoke of earlier. You can take part in a guided walking tour through the area to learn more about the indigenous. Um, what came from the Olympic teepee are the two main trusses that we see right here. The rest was all engineered and manufactured here in Medicine Hat. 
Wait. Yes. <laughs> what what came from the Olympics? Just the two main trusses. Just these two? Yes. That's it? Yes. I honestly, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure how I would react being here again, mm -hmm. but it is, I'm six feet tall now. <laughs> and I was this big before. It's just as incredible. Yes. Why do you think it was important that this call went out to indigenous artists? Because it's our voice, our culture, and we need to tell that story. Mm -hmm. So yes, we did get some wonderful artwork from all over the country. Well, it was built to recognize. It was built out of respect and to acknowledge our indigenous past. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and, and so because it was built for that purpose, mm -hmm. why is it important that people still come and see this today? 30 years later, nearly. Well, it's an engineering marvel and it still tells a story. And like I said, people aren't born with this knowledge. They mm -hmm. need to come and learn it. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that and educate the public, then that's a step towards reconciliation. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call one 866 285-2253. The Medicine Hat Clay Industries National Historic District. During the first half of the 20th century, Medicine Hat was the clay capital of Western Canada. Brick manufacturing began in the community in the 1880s, and by 1907, the early brickyards were displaced by larger businesses thanks to the municipal incentives offered by Medicine Hat as well as direct access to the CPR and the low-cost natural gas. Early manufacturers who built products out of the abundant clay offered by the Medicine Hat area were Alberta Clay Products, the Medicine Hat Brick and Tile, and the Medicine Hat Pottery Company. There were three main pre-1914 factories that formed the core of the community's clay product industry, and it helped create a boom period for the area during those early years of growth. The Medicine Hat Clay Industries National Historic Site is situated in the North Flats and it includes a combination of historical buildings that run for 1.2 kilometers along the rail line, including the former Alberta Clay Products Factory Site, the National Porcelain Company Site, and the Highcroft Pottery Site. On these sites there are ceramic pottery molds and products at the Highcroft plant, equipment associated with the early phases of brick building and relic pieces of gas machinery. At the Alberta Clay Products site, there is still a down-draft kiln that is a solid brick construction with a glazed interior wall, and tunnels and other kilns are also found at the site. At the Medalta Pottery's National Historical Site of Canada, there are five interconnected buildings, 
consisted of one detached building and a row of four beehive kilns that are grouped together into a cohesive factory complex. The entire site operated from 1909 until just after the Second World War, and it would become a National Historic Site of Canada on March 28, 2000. St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church National Historic Site If old churches are something you enjoy seeing on a road trip, then the St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church is a place to visit in Medicine Hat. Built between 1912 and 1914, the church has two large spires that rise up in the air and which made it the tallest structure for a time in the early years of the city. The church was designed by Manly Cutter, who used reinforced concrete to build the structure. Due to the use of modern materials and the French Gothic design, the church represents a unique blend between the old and the new. The bells in the church were also cast in France in 1914 and shipped over to Canada prior to the outbreak of the First World War. Over the course of the next century, various changes would be made at the church. A hammer beam ceiling was installed between 1931 and 1932, while rose windows on the east and west sides were added in 1955. And in 1977, a copper exterior roofing was added to the structure to prevent the leaking of the original concrete roof. Bruno Gerussi Born in Medicine Hat on May 7, 1928 to a coal miner and his wife, Bruno Gerussi would live his very early life in the community before his family moved to Exhaus so that his father could work as a section man for the Canadian Pacific Railway. Growing up nearby in Exhaw, he would attend the Banff School of Fine Arts and then move with his family to New Westminster. As a young man in his 20s, he would join the Stratford Festival in its second season and would perform in stage productions around Canada and the United States. One of the biggest moments during that time for him was when he played Romeo in the first Stratford Festival performance of Romeo and Juliet. Two years later, he would make an early appearance on television as Feist in a TV production of Twelfth Night. From 1967 to 1968, he would host a CBC morning show on the radio called Jerusi Words and Music. In 1972, his most iconic role would be given to him when he was cast as Nick Adonidas on The Beachcombers, one of the longest-running shows in Canadian history, with 387 episodes from 1972 to 1990. This show would make him famous across Canada and allow him to host a second show on CBC called Celebrity Cooks during the 1970s and 1980s. He would host 478 episodes that featured celebrities such as Bob Crane, David Letterman, and Jean Beliveau. Hi, I'm Bruno Gerussi. Hi, I'm Bruno Gerussi. Hi, I'm Bruno Gerussi. Hi, I'm Bruno Gerussi. We've been looking everywhere for somebody who looks like me. So here's your chance. If you think you look like me, send your picture to us and you may win a part opposite me and the Beachcombers. Send your picture to this address. Jerusi Lookalike Contest, Beachcombers, Marley's Reach, Gibson's BC, V0N, 1V0. Robertson, as they were in 1938, two cars and a corner lot. Today they offer the full GM line of Chevrolet and Oldsmobile from the compact Cavalier to the high-powered diesel truck, and they service whatever they sell. And that corner lot of 1938 will now stretches 10 acres along the Danforth. So if you're looking for a new car, look to Robertson. They began back when things were reliable, and they're still here. Robertson Motors, where dreams come true. Mmm. Have you tasted what's happened in frozen pizza? 
The good news is McCain light delight. The good taste starts with this crispy croissant crust. 16 layers of paper-thin pizza dough cooked up into a light-textured, flaky, gourmet crust. The good food continues on top with a hearty helping of everything you expect in a great pizza. McCain light delight. Taste what's happened in frozen pizza. He would also host the first Genie Awards in 1980, and he would receive a Gemini Award nomination for his performance in The Beachcombers in 1990, the last season of the show. He would pass away on November 21, 1995 from a heart attack in his Vancouver home, where he lived with his partner, Judge Nancy Morrison. In 1996, he would be presented the Earl Grey Award for Lifetime Achievement posthumously, with his children Rico and Tina accepting the award on his behalf. The Rainmaker Arrives During the first part of the 20th century, Charles Hatfield was one of the most famous men in North America, thanks to his claims to be able to create rain by using a secret mixture of 23 chemicals in evaporating tanks that he said attracted rain. He would travel throughout the continent, claiming to have had 500 successes, with his most notable being in San Diego in 1916. San Diego Council offered to pay him $10,000 once the reservoir was filled. What followed was one of the worst rainstorms in the city's history that destroyed two dams, several homes, and killed 20 people. In 1921, Hatfield would come to Medicine Hat to bring the rain to the parched area of Alberta. In January 1921, City Council decided that it would pay Hatfield $2,000 for every inch of rain that he was able to produce, for a total of $8,000 for four inches spread over a 200-mile circle around Medicine Hat. In today's funds, that $8,000 would be $106,000. Anything over 4 inches would be free and no extra charge would be given. Hatfield would set up his rain-making plant 20 miles from Medicine Hat at Chapice Lake, and the agreement stated that Hatfield would get credit for half the rain that fell between May and August. Hatfield would arrive in Medicine Hat at the end of April, and he would begin to erect towers at Chapice Lake in order to bring the rain that he promised. Upon his arrival in Medicine Hat, he was greeted by three executives of the United Agricultural Association, and he was then taken to a hotel before he began work near the community. By July, very little rain had begun to fall in the area, and Hatfield was given another chance to make good on his promise at the beginning of July, and he got back to work on his production plant at the lake. By this point, his popularity was very low in the area. Whatever he did, well, it must have worked, or perhaps he was just entering the rainy season of the area. By the end of July, the Medicine Hat area had enjoyed several inches of rain and Hatfield was paid the full $8,000 for his services after bringing 4.24 inches to farmers who were very appreciative for his help, if there had been any at all. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Medicine Hat, Alberta. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at you can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden Doug Campbell Reg W Deborah Carlson Francis Helbling Randa McCallum Diane Wade, Laurie Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, 
Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. I'll see you again next time.